Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. Today we're talking about how to tap into your potential, even when you can't see it, and even when your circumstances make you feel incapable. Our guest is Lance Powell of Georgia, who shares how he encountered Buddhism at a time when hope for the future was hard to find, and how chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo allowed him to finally tap into the potential he knew he had, but had never quite been able to access before. I'll let Lance share the rest. My name is Lance Powell. I live in Decatur, Georgia, quite literally right outside of Atlanta, maybe within a couple of few blocks of the city limits officially. So I am in Georgia. I've lived here for the past 15 years. And what do you do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a middle school teacher which I know a lot of people immediately either say good luck or I couldn't do, I couldn't do that or (laughs) bless you, which I'm less like, which I'm just like, Oh, thank you. And then I think the other thing that people ask is, do you like your job? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm always, I'm always happy to respond. I love what I do. I Mm -hmm. genuinely do. I do. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah teaching but also that age is important and difficult work and I know that your journey into becoming an educator is something that we will touch on today as well so I'm I'm excited to hear about that in a bit yeah so I was thinking um so I always like to just start with a kind of the story of how people came to practice Buddhism just so we kind of know who we're talking to and for those who are new they can get a sense too of what that path was so why don't we start there? If you could just tell me the brief story of like, how did you encounter Buddhism? And then what was going on in your life that you were interested in trying to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo? Yeah, so I guess in order to answer that question, I'm going to actually go back a little bit further than that. Sure. So in 2007, I grew up in Philly, actually born in North Carolina, and I went I was looking for colleges I went to I went to everywhere to like look but the biggest objective was trying to put distance between myself and my mother because up until that point we had had a very tense and a very tumultuous relationship there were a lot of yeah we did not see eye to eye and I was in turmoil about that and I just wanted to get away from her I didn't, I think at that point I did not want to completely break away from her, but, you know, I honestly could say I did not feel comfortable at all, like, being around her and sharing all parts of myself. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm gay. I didn't, I wasn't really that interested in studying medicine, which is what she wanted me to do. I really wanted to go to college to become a journalist and a member one of the things that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I shared with her was that I wanted to do this. And, you know, one of the first things was that she said was that you can't do that. Your voice says you have a speech impediment. So that's a no, that's a no go. And she said, they don't make a lot of money. You should go, you're too smart. You should go to something that makes you a lot of money. And so it was like a kind of like a lot of that. I always felt like she was trying to run my life and I was trying to do me and I never was able to. So I went to Georgia. As a result of that, I even applied to college. I applied to college. I like came up with the application field by myself, all of this, and I applied. So that's how I got to Georgia. And when I got there, it was like, I had all this freedom I didn't know what to do with because it was suddenly I was hours away from my mother. And, you know, I wasn't very focused at the time. So I didn't do very well in undergrad. I was a student at Emory University, actually almost flunked out. And I was able to come back from that. But that, I think, really put a huge 
blow onto my ego and onto my self-esteem, which was already really fragile at the time because I felt like that was the one thing that could distinguish me, that I was a good student academically, that I was quote-unquote smart and intelligent. And once I didn't have that, Mm -hmm. it was just like, wow, what am I even doing? And then coupled with that was the sense that I wasn't going anywhere or doing anything meaningful with my life. When I graduated from undergrad, I, my mother was on the phone with me and she was just like, well, you can come back home. And I knew I was not doing that. I could not do that. And the only, my only job prospect was literally the work study job that I had worked as a museum security guard. We had a museum on my college campus. And I worked there as a gallery attendant security guard type of job. And I, you know, it was a job. And I kind of lied to my mom a little bit. I made it seem like I had a little bit of a better job than I had, even though I was only being paid part-time and at like $10 an hour. But I was just, I rolled the dice. I was just like, I'm going to go with that and see if I can make it on my own. And I, obviously I did, but (laughs) I, but at that time... I was just barely making it. I was with a roommate who was one of my good friends, but I was constantly like asking for help with rent. I felt, you know, really hopeless about my situation. I didn't really have a lot. I didn't even have, I didn't even have furniture in my room. I didn't even have a bed to sleep on. I remember moving in. We, the way we got furniture was that somebody was moving out, happened to have a couch, so we just took that, and then someone else threw a mattress on the dumpster so I remember fishing that out and and it wasn't too bad or anything and I cleaned it up a little bit and I put it on my Zootis trim mattress on the floor in my room and that became my bed for a long time and yeah it was like a year out of graduating from this prestigious university I went to Emory University in Atlanta I was sleeping on the floor on a dirty mattress and I wasn't working a job, which all I was doing was standing in a place and telling the patrons not to touch anything. While a lot of the people I went to school with were going to graduate school, medical school, some became a couple of road scholars, all of this. So I just felt like I was a complete failure. Hmm. And so I just surfed the web stayed in bed the hours I wasn't working, was depressed. Me and one of my friends used to sit on the couch and we used to drink cheap wine and eat pretzels. She was in a similar situation I was, and we just were both lament our situations. And yeah, that's kind of what I did. And just kind of, you know, hung out online and took in the pop culture at the time, which was a lot of terrible memes from BuzzFeed and <laughs> Twitter and doing all of that. That's what I did. And then I, on the side, I was like really involved in the activist community. So I did a lot of, so I did a lot of that, but I was just like in this hopeless situation. And do one of those many conversations I would have like in Facebook groups online, I found somebody, you know, we were in a shared group and I did something I hardly ever do. I added this person. I added her on Facebook and we just started talking and it turned out she was a SGI member, which is our local Buddhist community out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So mm-hmm. she would talk to me about, you know, how Buddhism was the best philosophy that she had ever come across. And she talked to me about how it really helped her. And at the time I wasn't I wasn't negative against, like, against it or anything. I had already made up my mind at the time that I was probably agnostic. I had, I didn't, I wasn't against religion, but I was against religion that seemed to be oppressive against who people were. Like, mm-hmm. like I was not very open if it was, like, very close-minded or, you know, didn't allow people to be who they were. And for me, it was, like, really important for me to authentically be myself. So first hearing about this philosophy that one said I could do anything I wanted to, and two, I didn't have to hide any parts of myself, my blackness, my gayness, to practice it, and that I could fundamentally change my circumstances. I 
it kind of piqued my interest, but I didn't, I just understood that as a philosophy. I didn't do anything about it for over a year. I would, but over that year, me and my friend, but we actually, you know, ended up, you know, I actually ended up getting more interested in one day. I really wanted to know more about the Buddhist community that she was a part of. And one day I Googled it literally to see if there are any local meetings in my area. And so I found one. It was on Wednesday night at seven o'clock. I'll never forget the date and time. And so for anybody that know in Atlanta that knows that knows that knows that's listening to this, they know that our public transportation system is not the best, but it's how I used to get around. So I caught Marta. That's <laughs> our transit system and went all the way over there and then walked about four blocks through a neighborhood that was looking for this place. And I honestly did not know what to expect. I was just like thinking, I hope I'm not intruding on these people's space. They don't know I'm coming. I could be the only black person in the room. I thought it was going to be a, a little temple. I really didn't know what to expect, but what I found when I got there was just the most welcoming atmosphere. And people from all walks of life that really represented Atlanta, which is a very diverse, a very, you know, open community. And I was in an introduction meeting where people were speaking freely about their religious experiences. But at the same time, we were learning quite a bit about Buddhism. And the facilitators were just so warm. And one of the things that I'll never forget was they told me, bring questions. Please bring plenty and plenty of questions. Mm. And to give this 90 days, to try this Buddhism for 90 days and to see what it does. And we always had these intro meetings every week and I was like, bet. I don't think I actually said bet, but I said, okay, <laughs> I'll come back. And I just kept coming back week after week. I loved it. It was a great atmosphere. And I felt like the people were genuinely happy to see me. And I got a good vibe. And, mm-hmm. you know, for someone who had grown up bullied because of my speech, impediment because I didn't really have group great athletic ability because I was considered a nerd because I was a feminine all sorts of things I was already very skittish shy around people and I didn't really have a strong sense of who I was so there were these people telling me that you're you're amazing and it was just like okay I get good vibes so I'm gonna just keep coming back so that's kind of how I got started And then I think somewhere in there, I just started chanting on my own. I think the first time I remember chanting, like for real, remember chanting was I was just at home Mm -hmm. and I remember chanting for a few minutes and liking it and I chanted longer and longer. And then before I knew it, 40 minutes had passed and Mm -hmm. I was just like, wow, like I just felt good. And yeah, I was, Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I got started with the practice, just very slowly and organically. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing all of that context. And also so, so honestly, I think, you know, many people might have different circumstances, but can probably relate to what you're saying in their own way. Just like the, just feeling hopeless or feeling like you're stuck in, in circumstances and just not knowing what you can do about it. It's like an incredibly difficult place to be. So yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's so honestly. So, so I'm thinking, I, I want to kind of hear what changed. So, you know, like once you did start chanting, but maybe before I ask that, just to sort of set up the, the theme a little bit for today, I wanted to, I, I wanted to sort of focus on how Buddhism can help us find a sense of purpose and a sense of direction, even if you just, if life is throwing thing after thing after thing at you, because sometimes that is what's happening. And I know that you've experienced a lot of change over the years. So just sharing that little bit of context, you know, like that journey for you is what I wanted to unpack together if you're okay with it. But maybe we can start close to the beginning. So so you, you're going through all of this, you discover this Buddhist practice and this Buddhist community, you like the vibe, you start chanting, but like over time, you know, did anything start to change in terms of how you were feeling or did anything in your circumstances change or yeah, what, like what kind of happened next? Honestly, Jihee, at the time, if you would have told me I was, I would have been fine practicing if nothing else had changed 
because I honestly just wanted, honestly just wanted to be around people who like me. Oh, goodness. But it was about a month into my practice, and I kind of was on Facebook like I often was at that time in my life, and about 10, 11 years ago, and a message came through from my aunt, which is my mother's sister, for more context. Mm-hmm. Now, my mother's sister and my mother did not get along. They actually did not talk since my grandmother's funeral in 1999. There was a lot of a lot of discord there. But because of that, my mother did not bring myself and my younger brother around my family often. So I grew up very isolated. And aside from the visits we would take to North Carolina, which is where my family is from, Mm-hmm. Rural Eastern North Carolina. <laughs> uh, shout out to the Buddhist community there. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't really see our family. So in Philly, it was quite literally a few of my mom's friends, myself, my brother, and her. And so my mom used to. She didn't have really good thoughts about either side of my family. She, aside from my grandparents, she didn't really communicate with many of my father's side. And then my mother's, and then my mom wasn't in contact with, as wasn't really close to many of like her family members as well. So when my aunt reached out to me out of nowhere, she wanted to see how I was doing. And so I responded back. And then we exchanged details and we ended up talking. We ended up talking for about six hours on the phone. And we talked for six hours on the phone just about everything and I was under the impression for years that everybody in my family just hated us and that we weren't you know really wanted around because that's what was communicated to me and my aunt pretty much had told me that that was not the case and she had expressed how most of the family aunts and uncles had worried about us and had wanted to really you know, connect with us, but weren't really sure how. And I was just like, I definitely want to connect with you all. Absolutely. And for the first time, it was like I was meeting all these family members and I was starting to gain a sense of connection with family. So I think to answer your question, what changed in my life? I started to become more connected to more people, which is really significant because in Buddhism, there's this concept called dependent origination in which basically it boils down to the fact that everybody on this planet is connected in one way. We always were. So for me, it wasn't that I'm, I would have told you pretty years ago I made these connections, but now I understand. I discovered that these connections were already here And I think it was Drew Me Channing that allowed me to, at the time, you know, I didn't know it, allowed me to, you know, really get more attuned to that fact. Hmm. And then so beyond that, I, I actually, you know, I actually, you know, said, okay, well, if this is the case, let me just take, let me just take a, like a, a stab at it. And let me call my grandparents on my father's side. And my grandparents and my mother and uh, and I were estranged because my grandparents tried to get me back in contact with my father, but my mother was against this and told my grandparents not to contact me ever again. And then told me not to do the same. And, you know, my mother was a very domineering person. And so she had instilled in me over the years that if she said to do something, I just did it. Otherwise, she would punish me severely. So mm-hmm. I just did what she said. And I was, if that was some one of the times I was honestly still in fear of her because of that. So I just did what she said. Mm-hmm. So it was around the same time, going back to 2012, when I started getting connected with my aunt. It was literally the same day or the next day that I decided to call up my grandparents. I somehow chanted about, I chanted and then after I chanted Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, I something told me, well, why don't you call them up? And I guess I had the courage to do so, and I did. And mm-hmm. they were also really happy to hear from me. And one of the things that my grandparents, my grandparents had said is that they, we had lost five years. 
And my grandparents were already in their early 80s at the time. So we weren't really sure how much time we had left. So they were very happy to hear from me. And I was really happy to get reconnected. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's huge because it sounds like that these kind of family connections and like your experience in your family was so much part of the the root of what you were feeling. But at the time, it wasn't like the top of mind circumstances, you know, and it, so it's funny how like when you start chanting, like whatever in your life needs to move starts to move, <laughs> whether it's yeah. like what you're actively thinking about or not. Yeah, it really is. But... I mean, the family issues didn't stop from there, not at all. I think when my mom found out I was connecting with more people, she actually didn't try to forbid me, but, you know, she was still, you know, talk about, you know, the experiences she had, which were really negative. And, you know, I had to put that in contact with what I was getting. So I was honestly conflicted a lot of times, and I felt like I was, like, in the caught in the middle a lot. So... That was something that I honestly prayed a lot about early in my practice. I was just like, I was just like, I want my, I want to have a nice family. I want to, you know, have a, you know, I really want to not feel like we're always in conflict. So that was a lot of what drove me to really chant a lot in those early days, along with the fact that. You know, I was still not even making $12 an hour. <laughs> so it was like these real problems. Mm-hmm. But yet I would go into a Buddhist meeting because at this point, the people, the lovely people who were running the intro meeting said, you know, there's a, you know, there's a meeting that, you know, there's a meeting in your neighborhood, right? And mm-hmm. I said, one even closer to me. So they connected, so they connected me to the people who lived over there. And I started going to meetings over and over in that part of town. So, I see. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. People often ask, like, how you get started. And then, so I feel like this is yeah. ultimately you start chanting and then you get connected to your local group. And that kind of becomes like your community that you practice with, often based on where you live. I remember when I first started hanging out with these people, because they all my friends now and were from the start. One of the first things we did was, I remember I was, I remember I was not feeling particularly great that day because I still would go into my moods. It wasn't like when I started chanting, everything magically went away forever. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. (laughs) I think one of the people who kind of headed up the group that I was a part of, she said she was going to visit a longtime member. We were going to chant it at his home. Would I like to come? And I said, absolutely. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, you know, I got picked up by her, by her. We went over there. That was actually the first in-person activity I'd ever gone to outside of intro meetings. And I had met this young, I had met this man. He was not young. He was actually elderly at that point, but his spirit was extremely, you know, very happy and very youthful. And he was going through some extreme challenges in his life, he had told me that he had started practicing in 1959. And I just, wow. this astounded me. And yeah, we started chanting, the group of us, about five or six of us there in his apartment. He, you know, had, we were chanting. And then we dialogued some more after that. And one thing that he said, he's since passed away now, but one thing that he said that he, that will never leave me, he said Buddhism is to fear nothing. Hmm. And he was able to say that, he said after all this life, he said, I, he, said, he said I can absolutely say that I fear nothing. And I just remember, I want to get to that point. Wow. Because I feared everything. My mother, what my mother thought of me, what other people thought of me, you know, Certain situations where it happened, I would just think that everything just gone straight to hell and had no chance of recovery. I just, I carried a lot of fear and mm. I wanted to get rid of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's really, it's actually so key to, 
to what happens when we chant. Like often when people ask, you know, how does it work? Essentially chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is just tapping into your own Buddha nature, Buddha ability, which is your own courage and your own wisdom and your own compassion and and everything else, you know, energy, confidence, just like the ability to take action, all of those things. So I, but I feel like, yeah, to hear that so early on and from someone who like lived such a long life of practicing Buddhism sounds like it must have been very, like a kind of formative in your practice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious then like, cause you're, I feel like you're foreshadowing what actually happened, like developing that sense of courage and overcoming all of these fears one by one. Oh, it sounds, you know, now that I know a little bit more about where you are now, I, I know that that has happened, you know, in a big way. So maybe we can just go back to the the work situation. So you, you know, you discover this community, you're, you're engaged in the practice, these things in your family are starting to change, but what did anything shift in terms of work or, or income? And how did you sort of get on the path to, to get to where you are now? Yeah, yeah, because this, yeah, no, thank you for asking that question. Because I was working at a museum, and I did receive a small promotion while I was at the museum, actually. I stopped being their security guard and actually became their front desk person. So instead of just, instead of like standing in the hall all the time, I still did do that role sometimes because it was still the same department. I got to sit behind the desk. I got to wear professional clothes and answer the phone. And I got an increase in my pay. And my supervisor, you know, and I, you know, we had a really good working relationship. And I could tell that he trusted me with all of that. But one thing that I struggled with in that role was customer service. And it wasn't, you know, me struggling to be nice. It was actually me struggling you know, in times I had to be firm. So definitely having to be firm and having to deal with people was something, looking back on it now, was something that definitely developed. And I remember when these situations, little situations would arise at work, even back then, I would, yeah, we'd chant about it. And they would improve. And But eventually, you know, I knew I wanted more than just being the front desk person at the museum, even though, even though I was in a job that, you know, people were like, oh, you work at a museum. <laughs> I was like, yeah. They were like, that's so cool. So, you know, I thought about, you know, the fact that while I was in college, one of the things I really liked to do was tutor, was tutor students. At one point, I was, it was one of my many work-study jobs because I always worked on campus. It was my, literally my only source of income. I, you know, I used to tutor students in Atlanta Public Schools and I also used to work with adult English language learners, you know, here in Atlanta. So I really enjoyed it. I remember one time I got a chance to, the, I got a chance to lead the adult education class because the main teacher was doing conferences and needed someone to still do the lesson. I said, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, I think I could teach. And I actually liked working with, working with kids and it was, it was also a job that I felt like could contribute positively to the world because one thing, one promise I made to myself, I told myself I I didn't want a job that wasn't going to positively contribute to the world. Like, I think one of my worst nightmares would be if I was just like working for a company that maybe had, like, for, maybe had unscrupulous goals or things like that. But I also wanted to be comfortable financially and be steady, so... You know, I went for teaching, actually, at the time, and I applied to graduate school, Morrisville University, and I was really nervous about that because I didn't have a great GPA in undergrad, so I was just like, well, will a graduate school even accept me? But, you know, they did, and I was able to begin a master's program in, master's program in education and really begin on that path and still be able to work at the museum. And I was actually, at this point, I was able to, you know, I was actually in a better financial position compared to where I was. And I was able to, like, I really felt like I was on the path to, to you know, to being good. And actually at that time, this is where, where I stopped, stopped chanting as much. Because mm-hmm. I was just like, everything's good. 
I still went to my local group meetings. I still would, I still would, you know, go to our local, our local community center here in Atlanta. I did all of that, but I honestly could, I honestly could say that I was not chanting every day. And I was just like, well, I'm good. So it's not like it wasn't anything <laughs> urgent, but that changed very quickly. Um, and it wasn't until I got to student teaching. Actually, the their student teaching experience, because at this particular university, you had to do it multiple times throughout your whole program, not mm-hmm. just one time at the end. So it was the final one, which it was worth nine, it was worth like nine credit hours, and it was a lot riding on this experience, and a good recommendation pretty much meant you were going to like get a teaching position like right away. I was, I could honestly say that I was very lax. I used to wing it a lot in the classroom. I would throw my cooperating teacher off a lot with my attitude towards the student teaching experience. And even though, yes, I had a lot of knowledge, I had a lot of, like, I very clearly knew language arts, English, that's what I was student teaching in, I wasn't preparing properly especially looking back, looking back at it now and being in this career for while I was not preparing properly. And one day after I had flopped yet another lesson and the teacher actually came in and took over, you know, it was after that and she was giving me an evaluation and she told me to my face that I didn't have what it took to, to be a teacher. Hmm. And that was something that was extremely it was hurtful to me and it was sobering. But it was just like once again, I'm right back in this rut of mediocrity. Like I kept like I kept feeling like I was mediocre. It was the same feeling I had in undergrad. You've got all this potential, but you're not doing anything with it. Mm. It was just like what's going on. And so after after that I remember going to Michael Hunt and once again, object of devotion, once again, and really chanting once again about this. Why? Why is this happening to me? And at the time, I was just like, I was in the mindset, well, this she's being completely unfair to me. She, you know, is being so hard on me. Why am I in this situation? And I was just like, well, I'll have to prove her wrong. So <laughs> that's what I, that's what I started doing. I started staying later. I started you know, like really working to create lesson plans that she would really believe, that she would really, you know, like, and that the students would really learn from. And it was actually the night before one of my biggest, my biggest lesson. I was at the school really late. It was almost nine o'clock at night, you know, caught the local bus and train home to my apartment. And I got, I ended up getting robbed at gunpoint. Oh my gosh. And yeah. This was the night before, like, my one of my biggest lessons. And so it was, like, it was, like, dealing with the police. And one of the things I did when I got back into my apartment finally was I shot off a text to, you know, there was a group of young men, basically another community within the larger community in Atlanta that I was a part of. We had a group text where we all shared our experiences. And I said, yeah, this just happened to me. And one thing I remember was all the support I got. Mm. Just like, you, you're going to be okay. You're going to win. And yeah, I remember getting them from the Gohansen and chanting. And somehow I got up the next morning and I was able to deliver the lesson. I even got a compliment from the teacher, my cooperating teacher. And then... I had an emotional breakdown hmm. after that. And to and it was just like I was able to still perform, but then they could but then I think even my cooperating teacher could still tell that something terrible had happened to me because I was like not I was still like not myself and she actually showed concern and urged me to like, you know, really seek, you know, really seek help and which I did. And from that, I was just thinking, okay, well, this is good. I still got you the lesson. But then I remember recounting this experience 
when the university sat down with my cooperating teacher and then my professor who was supervising me and I shared the story thinking, well, this was telling why I've been off and why I should pass. And the university said, we're going to pull you from this experience and you should take a medical withdrawal. And it was just like, I, 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 I was just devastated all over again because it was just like, after all that, I still failed. Mm. So I had to still get back in front of the Gohanzen and Chan and I, you know, I was talking to, you know, like a lot of, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the local community members about this. And, you know, they basically told me that, basically told me that I still needed to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo no matter what. That there was, <laughs> that you still needed to chant, you still needed to, there still was more for you, within your life that needed to change. There was still a way for you to, you know, prove that this practice was, you know, true. And I didn't know what that meant, but everyone was still telling me, okay, well, keep chanting. You're still not the end of the world. You're still in the program. You can still become a teacher. And so that's what I did. And the next semester, I was when I was with a very, I was with a very, you know, different cooperating teacher. And was actually to the point where he was telling me, you're like really on top of it. That's just the mindset I was in. So I, yeah, I got through that. And I, I ended up getting my Master of Arts in teaching. And oh. I... Yeah, and I was just like, wow, I achieved this. And I, you know, was, I came back from that and I had good reviews from the cooperating teacher that I was with. I was, you know, given all of my, I was given, you know, all of like my certifications or I made, oh, I was able to be certified in all of those areas, social studies and language arts. And my grade point average in the program was very good. So, I was, wow. yeah, I can't draw that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What a journey. And you know, what's striking about what you're, what you're saying, I feel like you're touching on such an important teaching in Buddhism, which is that no matter what our circumstances might be, right. having the spirit to still take full responsibility that like the power is in our hands and that's like sometimes the hardest thing to do because there's situations in which you know, okay, it's it's me. Like I was slacking off a little, I should work harder. But then there's other situations in which like stuff really is happening to you or it's just like you could never expect that you would go through something hard. And, and sometimes we get stuck in this place of like, why me? Or can I do it? And just become paralyzed. But it, it sounds like you just kept going back to chanting and kept like making another determination until you finally made it through. Yeah, there were definitely times I felt like I was paralyzed. There were definitely, I definitely had plenty of those, oh yeah. But one thing that I kept falling into the mindset of was, okay, I made it do that. I should be good now, right? (laughs) I kept thinking that. So, you know, one day I think I woke up and I think I realized, okay, wow, I have to actually find a job now (laughs) and so I remember yeah yeah and I was not getting anywhere but some of the local school systems in the area would have job fairs and you know I you know I went to a couple of them I went on interviews still wasn't getting anything and then it became and then it was July and it was just and in Georgia where I live on my school year is from August to May. Very different from the Northeast where I grew up. So I needed to really get in by I really needed to get in by August. I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. So I one of the larger school systems in the Atlanta area, they had a giant fair advertised for it. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to be the first person in line. I'm going to go there first. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to get there early. (laughs) So that's what I did. I got up early one morning. It was like 4.30 a.m. And that was a win because I'm not a morning person at all. (laughs) So took took Marta once again down to this place. There were already, there was already people there. I was not first, but I was at the front of the line, so I was like, okay. 
I was like, I can see the door. <laughs> and by the time 8 o'clock grew, 8 a.m. grew, I think I was there at 6, 8 a.m. grew, the line was like wrapping around the building and there were still cars coming in. Wow. So, yeah, I opened the door. We They opened the door and then I walk into this huge auditorium. No, it was a gym. This huge gym and I just see tables everywhere. And principals and school officials, like, they are waiting to give people jobs. And I'm just like, okay. So this is like speed dating for interviewers. So I just started sitting down at tables. And I remember I sat down at the first one. And I was just like, I'm going to get this job. I am absolutely going to get this job. And after I interviewed, they were like, no, we want someone with more experience. Hmm. And then... Throughout that day, I actually started to get more discouraged. And it was like, it was, it was so dramatic. There were like people like shouting that they had gotten jobs. And in the back, they were processing people's paperwork right on the spot. And I'm just like, what is going on? Oh my, oh my gosh. I have to walk out of here with a job. I just told myself I am determined to walk out of here with a job. And I kept going to table after table. And I made it to like the last one and it was at a middle school that didn't have such a great reputation. But I said, well, okay, here goes nothing. This is the last table. And I remember chaining Namyo Horinge Kyo under my breath. <laughs> and I said, and I walked up to the young, walked up to the man and I was just like, my name is Lance Powell. I am the teacher for you. I definitely want to work in your school and I want to contribute to your school community or something to that effect. And I was just like way, way more extroverted than I ever was because I'm a pretty introverted person or really was back then. So I was just like, I was not someone to just put myself out there. And then the interview was more and more positive and yeah, he said he would give me a call back. And I was just like, okay, this is good. And then so, you know, they interviewed me again. And two weeks later, they were calling me and they told me I had the job. Wow. And so I was just like, wow. I was like, wow, I did it. Yeah. Like I actually reached in within myself and was able to make myself get this job. And then this person that visited me on that first day, she came in and she said, you know, normal personalities don't work at the school. And I'm sitting here in my introverted timid self. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I quickly realized what she meant. And then I then I met my students. Mm-hmm. And uh, it did not go well. <laughs> it did not go well. And pretty much a long story short, it was it was absolutely chaotic. I mean, they figured out pretty quickly that I was a brand new teacher. I was teaching 12-year-olds, 7th graders, 12 and 13-year-olds, and I was I was pretty quickly pretty quickly going from teaching to having to put out any every type of fire imaginable. Students who wouldn't listen, students who would use inappropriate language in the classroom, students who would who were zozings around the room, would destroy the books, that were in my classroom. They used to fight each other, physically argue with one another. And, you know, I was just like, I couldn't believe this. And I couldn't believe that I had, I couldn't believe that I was like in this situation. And on one particularly bad day, you know, I remember walking, I remember walking outside of my room after my students had a food fight. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. That's how bad it got. And I walked outside the room. I walked outside my classroom. Across the hall, I heard one of my fellow teachers. She was really, you know, having, she was really fussing with another student. The student was fussing. The student was fussing as well. And then I look at the classroom next to me and the security guard is leading away other students in handcuffs. And I'm just like looking around and I'm just like, this is where I work. I, I, this is, oh my, like, this is horrible. But yet I'm hearing going to my Buddhist, local Buddhist meeting at this time, relating these horror stories 
the fact that I was probably taking over the local group with them because I was just like, what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. And they're telling me, well, it's in your environment. They're telling me, teaching me about this concept called Aishofuni, which basically means that you reflect what's in your environment. And I'm just like, how is how is any of this clicking? Because I cannot believe that I am causing an out-of-control classroom. And that's just where I was. And once again, it was... I, it was just like this another obstacle and mm-hmm. yeah I had thoughts well is this for me mm-hmm. so yeah it was like one thing after another after another after another so yeah oh my gosh yeah I mean that's insane but I'm just so amazed that like yeah this like constant of of the Buddhist community and then like applying one Buddhist concept after another to one obstacle after another and Right. And it was so bad that some of the teachers used to gather outside of my classroom and laugh at me. And hmm. yeah, I even later found out that some of them even was even them um, taking bets on when I would quit. Oh so my gosh. it was right. it was really, really rough on many levels for me that first year. There were two things at the end of the year that signaled to me that it was going to get better. One there was a new administrator who had come and she actually had given me meaningful help in the classroom where I felt like the first time and it was starting to improve. And then I thought about the, all the new teachers that were on the hall, same hallway as me. There were four of us. There was, I was the last one. Everybody else had quit. Wow. The other, they all, everyone else had quit. And I think the reason why I stayed, I, was learning about this really simple concept, but it's probably one of my, it's the concept that is on my altar right now, never give up. Mm. And it's very simple. We, we talk about it literally all the time, but truly I was learning through this practice to never, ever give up. Mm. So that's yeah. kind of something I lived. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, in, in some sense, like the the situations were different one after another. But like the, you know, in Buddhism, we we learn and I feel like you've described this so well through your example, like that life is not an absence of problems. Like if anything, you know, Buddhism teaches you how to scale mountains or how to solve problems or how to not give up rather than like you start practicing or you start chanting and everything suddenly becomes okay. So this kind of like, I'm good now, right? Thing that you're you're describing that just kind of never happens. It's so interesting to hear because like, yes, it is like one challenge after another, but it, it does really sound like you started to change like you were becoming less and less phased by it you know compared to like the the lance from the very beginning of the story yeah yeah so one thing that i always like to ask about and it feels like this is where you're headed anyway but bootability as we discussed earlier is about tapping into your own wisdom courage and compassion and what you just described of like this ability to to not give up even though you're facing thing after thing is like a perfect expression of exactly that right because how do you not give up you have to be courageous you have to find the energy you have to find the compassion so i'm just i'm wondering like based on that i mean i know it's been so many years now that you've been teaching and you're still teaching middle school but like what what sort of has shifted you know after that crazy first year well, I came back, well, you know, several things. I think with the fact that I knew that I was going to have people people around me that would support me no matter what. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the people that I would rant to most often was my mother. And at this point, she and I, our relationship was definitely improving a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we it was to a point where I actually looked forward to talking to her. And that was very different from when I first started, where I barely wanted to take calls from her. I dreaded them. And she would listen and, you know, empathize with me about what I was going through in the classroom. And, you know, she actually listened for many, many hours. And, you know, I really appreciated, appreciated that looking back on it now. And 
you know, after that tumult, towards the end of that tumultuous first year, actually my mother actually ended up having a really bad medical emergency. So one day I, she was coming out of the bathtub in the house in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and she fell through the bathroom floor. Literally, she fell through it and Gosh. broke her leg in the process. Yeah, the yeah there was a, yeah there was a weak board in the floor and it snapped mm-hmm. and the house was raised a bit so she wow. fell through. So she broke her leg and then she had called Drew the called you the house and had called me. I think she called me. No, she called me before she called nine one one, and I said you should call nine one one and all of this and and all of this and you know. At that time, my first instinct was was that I needed to go to her. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure I would have had that first instinct several years ago. But, you know, I think one of the things you learn about realism is about repaying the debt of gratitude to your parents, even, even no matter what, because they gave you life. And that was something that was hard for me to wrap my mind around because, you know, my father wasn't really around for much of much of my life. Mostly not by not by his choice, but he wasn't there. And then my mother and I did not have a great relationship. So when people would talk about like really respecting parents, I, well, I wasn't trying to hear it. Mm. I wasn't. And I would say, that's nice, but they don't know my parents. Mm-hmm. Or they don't know my folks. So, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that applies to me. I thought like this for a very long time, but I think at that moment, it started to make more sense to me because at the very least, this my mom had was like one of the few people that was like checking on me on a normal basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I still had the family members I reconnected with, but I mean, my mom was closer, of course. And I went to her and I was actually, you know, it was actually a really crazy situation because I was, I was also facing housing issues. Like I, like the apartment I was in had not renewed me, so I had to move out. So yeah, so yeah. When, at the end of the year, when school let out, and I still realized I had a job, I I once again was like, so I'm good, right? And then realized I had to like move out of my apartment. Oh, and then my mom had just fallen through the floor and was and was you know, basically in a wheelchair. So mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, I'm gonna. Okay, I'm going to go to my mom. I'm going to support her. And that's what I did. And, you know, we had a great summer. And I remember, like, supporting her through those couple of months I was there. Um, I think that I look back and I cherish that memory now because I think it was one of the last times where we spent, like, extended, extended time together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was healing and everything. And we didn't fight very often. We didn't. So, you know, I think that... Channing helped me kind of transform my relationship with my mom because it was, you know, even though we still didn't see eye to eye on lots of things, still at that time, I was still in a space where I was able to be civil with her. We were able to have conversations. I could be in the same house as her and it not be horrible, which was, you know, not something that I could even imagine, you know, not during my teenage years when I was like quite literally plotting. I would quite literally plot sometimes to run away, so... Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a huge shift. And I understand that she also passed away since then, right? Like she faced another, another health issue. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she did. She, yeah, she did. So during the pandemic, you know, I live in Atlanta. She lived in, she lived in Mount Olive, North Carolina at this time, which is where we grew up. And she ended up, she had cancer. But, you know, because of the pandemic and also because she was really particular about the medical institutions in her area and in general, she wasn't really getting treatment. And Mm -hmm. my mother was a nurse by trade, so she was kind of like trying to treat herself until, of course, she couldn't anymore. And pretty much I didn't find out about this until until the very Near the very end, I got a call from one of my from one of my cousins, and then from my aunt, the same aunt who had first reached out to me in 2012, and was basically like, "This is going on," and so at that point, you know, 
I was able to just go. And actually, it was actually, I was teaching virtually at the time. And so I was able to get up and go pretty good. And now my financial, you know, financially, I was actually in a much better position. I was able to even buy a flight, even buy a flight, book a flight the same day, which, you know, mm-hmm. is crazy expensive. So I was able to really go and be with my mom during the last month of, you know, her life. And it was a huge shift because... I was, like, very, you know, very timid. I wasn't sure of myself. But to have to deal with the situation as daunting as your mother, like, quite literally finding your mother on her deathbed, Hmm. yeah, you have to have the confidence, one, that everything is going to be okay, and two, to really tap in, you know, to your wisdom, to the courage, to still be able to handle everything. Because at the end of the day, that was my mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was the reason why I'm here. So, you know, when I got there, I got there and, you know, we had a great weekend. She was still talking. We were still awake and we spent the weekend reminiscing and doing. And I think I've dug up old pictures of her. I found mm-hmm. one that I hadn't even seen before, but they were on the ancestry. So I showed them to her and she got a kick out of that and... We had a really, yeah, we had a really great weekend, but then, of course, it came back that my mother' cancer was stage four. It had mm-hmm. spread pretty much everywhere, and only palliative care options were available, so it was just like, well, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Um, And I remember chanting about the best possible ending to this situation, and then wondering, I was doubting myself once again because it was just like, well, this is just the big kahuna. This is nothing could like top this. This is just like completely, you know, beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. There was also my brother who has special needs, who we'd had to, who we'd had to care for. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of variables, but. It was several things that I've that, that were huge benefits to me that happened during this time. The first thing was, I remember when I brought my mother home. It was just me and her. Yeah, because I was the only one, because it was COVID, so I was the only one often allowed in the, in the hospital room, so I was her only companion. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that my mom was very comfortable that it was me. So I knew that was that was one thing. And then two, when the doctors came in and, you know, I'm looking at my mom, you know, she's this domineering person. She was always in control of everything and tried to be in control of, you know, me and my brother's life as well for so long. You know, they're coming in with the discharge paperwork and everything. And I'm just thinking, okay, they're going to go to my mom. And then they came to me. Hmm. And then at that moment, it dawned on me, well, well, I am her caretaker now. Mm. Wow, I am. Wow, it is on it is on me. So another Buddhist concept that I really took to heart was being the light or being the son in someone's family. Even when your family doesn't practice, the only one in my family that practices Buddhism. But I still was dealing with a lot of my family members, you know, intimately. And, you know... I had to be the best possible representative of somebody who practices Buddhism. Not by like telling everyone this is what you need to practice, this is what you need to practice. Mm-hmm. But I was able to show really through my actions that mm-hmm. I could just take the situation and just handle it. So yes, no hesitate, mom. So yes, I rose to the challenge. I took my mom home. I did take care of her. I didn't blink twice about it. I did all those things. And I remember, yes, but I still remember being in despair. And I remember it was my one particularly bad evening. It was the evening I brought her home. And I, or maybe the evening after, I can't remember, but I saw her. She wasn't coherent anymore. She could not talk. And I remember I had left the room after I finished taking care of her and I had just lost it. I broke down. 
And then I got a phone call from one of the one of the people in my religious community. She'd also been practicing a very long time. She was she had listened to me for a few minutes, and then she said, "Okay, well, let's chant right now." And then after that, I felt able to. I was like, "Okay, I can face the situation once again." Mm-hmm. I felt the courage coming back, and actually, when I went back into my room, and that when my mom was awake. And we did have another conversation. Hmm. Actually ended up being one of the last ones we had, but she was talking. So that was something I remember. So being able to handle supporting somebody at the end of their life, being able to handle most of the arrangements and having the same aunt that reached out to you at the very beginning she was my companion and this I was like staying at her house a lot and she helped and she was helping me probably helping me with the arrangements and navigating the family and with my brother she helped me with my brother in so many ways financially and helping him get a place and I know that I would not have had her support you know had we not made that connection so many years earlier, it was about a decade at that point. And that was when I first started practicing. Wow. So it was like a full circle moment, even though it was like a really big, really huge, like, tragedy. And then, you know, my mother, I mean, passed away. She passed away peacefully. And mm-hmm. we were able to, you know, I was able to, you know, you know, I had the resources to give her a funeral that I think she would have, I think she really would have enjoyed. So. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's truly full circle, but just like what a, what a testament to the, you know, the, what you described earlier as like having all this potential and just not like manifesting it like that being sort of this like theme, it feels like the complete opposite. You're just like manifesting every ounce of your potential in every situation imaginable just by like building this endurance. So it's so encouraging. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. You know, after all that happened with my, after all that happened with my mother, you know, I have to, I I, I can't close this without mentioning the fact that I had the full support of my Buddhist community and also my school community. The, the same woman who the first who had who I had met who actually sounded the alarm that I needed stuff in my classroom. Mm-hmm. She had actually drove hours to North Carolina where I was to support me and my family, her and several other teachers. And, you know, yeah. after all of that I it gave me the strength to, you know, I went back to Atlanta and I picked right back up with my, at school and with at school in my career, because I think that's what my mom would have wanted me to do. And that's what I'm continuing to do because you know, now I'm like, yeah, because now I'm actually going to be going into my eighth year at that same school. I, I never left. Wow. So, so. Incredible. I had to still, after all that happened to my mom, you know, the school, they supported me so much and I was able to pick back up and continue my career and I'm still working for them. So that is incredible. Wow. Yeah. And dedication. (laughs) Well, oh my gosh, Lance, thank you for sharing all of this. I'm so, so encouraged by so many things that you've, you've shared. So, so I'll ask my very last question, which is how I always end the show. And that is for a piece of advice. So for anybody who's listening, who might be new to chanting or new to Buddhism, but currently struggling with something maybe similar to what you've gone through or any piece of it, really, what one piece of advice would you give them? So I definitely would say continue chanting Daimoku no matter what and put Daimoku or the chanting of Nam-myoho Renge-kyo, that's what we call chanting Daimoku, put that first and really believe in it. Hmm. Like, because if you believe in the Daimoku, you're really believing in your own life. And I think that when you come to that realization that your life has worth, I think that's when everything, 
changes. That's what happened with me, and that's what happened with so many people in this community. I want to leave you with these words from Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda, which refer to a concept that describes why chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo helps us tap into the infinite potential each moment of our life possesses. He writes, This principle of 3,000 realms in a single moment of life holds that each life moment is endowed with 3,000 different functions, which influence not only our own lives, but those of all around us. They also influence society, our natural environment, and the earth. They encompass the entire universe. Therefore, once you have decided to do something, the 3,000 functions and your entire being start working to help you reach your goal. The entire universe also starts moving toward the fulfillment of your goal. If you pray, this is how I want to be, and continue to work toward your dream, you will gradually realize the future you have envisaged. On that note, as always, if you'd like to learn more about any of these concepts or how to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, we have plenty of resources at bootability.org. And if you'd like to get connected to your local Buddhist community, you can always email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.